The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. My name is Dave Goldberg. I'm your, your show host, and I'm joined today by co-host Emma Schoenfellner. Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show at Hashtag Big Beacon Radio. And today we're fortunate to have as a guest Gary Bertolini, Dean of the Polytechnic at Purdue University. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, you and I met uh, uh, back in about 2013, about the time the Polytechnic was uh, beginning. And it's it's, uh, uh, great to have you on the show to talk about the Polytechnic. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, so Gary, uh, before we dive into the Polytechnic and what's been going on at Purdue, get, uh, you've been a professor, you've, you've uh, been an author. I, I remember using your graphics textbook when I taught engineering graphics at the University of Illinois. You're, you've been an associate dean, a dean. Let's hop back in the time machine and, and what, what early experiences in your life um, can you point to that led you to this point in your career? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. In fact, I was asked a similar question just yesterday. Um, we're starting a, um, a high school in Indianapolis, and um, during the interview process for the school leader, that that uh, we started discussing why we had an interest in education in general. And this yeah. this is a true story. I still remember being in study hall in high school, being bored to death having a sheet of paper in my notebook and writing out what I thought was wrong with education. And I actually had a list that I started and what I would do to transform education. That led me to um, you know, college where I actually did go into education, technology education, uh, led to my first uh, few jobs, and then I just kept on working from that. Even my textbooks, I always looked at what... Uh, was being done currently, and what I could do to improve on it. And so that really motivated me to write the textbooks. So I've had a deep interest in improving education at all levels. It was a long time ago. If you remember any of the things that you wrote on that uh, that list of things in study hall in high school. Yeah. What, um, what, did you, I, what were some of the things on that list? 
I remember one was don't be boring. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, um, you know, and um, challenge uh, students and, um, you know, fairness and some of the just common things that you would expect uh, people to behave. But, you know, when you get in an education system, um, everybody, everyone is kind of trying to be fit into a norm or stay between the lines. I yeah. I, was, I think I'm a pretty creative person. I had a hard time staying between the lines, and uh, I just really struggled um, with being confined that way. And so that's what I remember. I don't remember some of the other things. Uh, and on this program, too, you know, the whole new engineer, Mark Somerville, and I uh, talk about unleashing experiences as one of the ways that education might go in the 21st century. And, and so along those lines, uh, you know, what, Gary, what experiences or personal influences in your life allowed you to write outside the lines, as you were just saying, what, who, what did, what gave you the courage to, to, to do that? Well, you know, it's, this is another very vivid memory. I remember, um, um, when I was a freshman in college, you know, we had a, a day or two before classes started, and um, there's um, some events that you would go to to kind of acclimate you to college. And I remember meeting a couple of professors, and, you know, the way they were talking about the experience and everything, I actually remember <clears throat> saying to myself, I think I want to be a professor. <laughs> I think that because they were talking about, you know, um, there are bells ringing. You, you go to class to class. You're expected to, you know, do all this on your own. Um, you select classes within a, you know, um, a degree program, but there's some uh, ways that you can, you know, modify that through electives and selectives and things. And I immediately saw some of the freedom that I was looking for that I never had in high school. And so that actually was a, a moment where I thought that I can unleash my creativity, and then I got into some of my classes, and um, suddenly I found myself being very, very successful. I mean, I was an okay student in high school, but when I got to college, I I just, um, you know, felt like my creativity was being unleashed for the first time, and uh, I just loved every minute of it. Well, that's a that's a terrific story, and that's interesting that you you saw in in the outlines of of the higher education the freedom you were looking for. So we're we're also we've got uh, uh, Emma Schoenfelder as uh, uh, co-host. As you listen to Gary, what uh, questions do you have for him? Um, I'm just wondering, you know, what was it that drew you to Purdue and moving into to higher ed, and how did that kind of affect your life and what what in what in Purdue drew you there initially? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I did my PhD work at Ohio State and I was actually on the faculty of engineering there. And um right after I received my PhD and but I also saw some constraints uh within that. Um um you know, I, I was doing well, but what Purdue offered was the, was the opportunity to actually go in and start something from scratch. Um, computer graphics was just starting to uh, really take hold in society, and um, I had made some early inroads into that. My first books were in the area of uh, computer-aided design, and so 
uh, they recruited me to come and start a computer graphics program, and that's what really motivated me was this opportunity to unleash some of my creativity. That, that's what really uh, attracted me. The other thing was is that they had this strange college that you don't normally hear about in uh, or at research-intensive universities, and it's the College of Technology, which is uh, a more applied way of doing engineering and computer science, and that really attracted me also. And and th- and actually, that's you know part of why we're here today is uh, we're we're talking about the transformation of the College of Technology. And on this show, we do a lot of talking about engineering, but we're not. And Purdue has a great College of Engineering, but we're not mm-hmm. talking about their College of Engineering. We're talking about the College of Technology, and it transforming to something that you've called the Purdue to Polytechnic. What is what is the um, what is the Polytechnic? Well. Um I'll try and keep this brief, but there, there's a, a real historical reason on why we chose to go down this path. And um, it's, it's really based around the first polytechnic, which is the Ecole Polytechnic in Paris, France, that was created in 1794. And that was at the emergence of the Industrial Age, and they basically needed to create a new discipline, and that new discipline was engineering to provide graduates for the emerging industrial age. And again, if you look historically, one of the first engineering schools, if not the first, was uh, RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, They started engineering in this nation. Obviously, it's a very good university still in existence. And so the polytechnic of the late uh, 1700s, early 1800s were to create a new discipline of engineering. What I'm suggesting is that for a lot of reasons that we may get into, uh, we're in the digital age right now. Higher education is under pressure for a, a lot of different reasons because of kind of where we are historically. And we actually need another discipline um, that better serves the needs for this digital age and the changes that need to occur in the classroom. Um, for the 21st century. And so this is basically the polytechnic for the 21st century. So we were very deliberate in the selection of that name. And um, that's a quick overview of of, uh, uh, why we did that. The other reason is obvious. You know, we are going through, if we're successful, a truly transformation. Um, And we didn't think we should be stuck with the old name. We really need to do something new and different and yeah. need to be identified and, that way. And, and, and so, but you're talking about transformation, you're talking about change, you're talking about kind of a, you know, so they're talking about uh, changing moments in history. And so we're at a changing moment of history. What's different about um, the, what's different about this moment? You mentioned the digital age, but what, what is it that needs to be different in, say, the polytechnic versus uh, uh, where what the what the College of Technology has been? Yeah, well, so, um, and this doesn't apply just to the College of Technology, in, in my opinion. Okay. Um, there's a lot of evidence right now, and when you survey industry, you simply talk to people from industry, not necessarily people in HR, but the ones that are actually, you know, um, out there doing designing, manufacturing, you know, whatever, um, I'll focus on the STEM disciplines, whatever STEM discipline you're working in, 
what you will hear over and over and over again. Graduates are great technically, but they're weak on critical thinking, on problem solving, on communicating, on integrated uh, learning. Uh, these these uh, attributes that are absolutely critical for uh, being um, successful in this digital age. Uh, the digital age is a, a huge transformation just as the industrial age was, and I don't think higher education has reacted uh, to that transformational change. They have not recognized it. It's like, you know, um, when you're living history, you don't recognize sometimes the significance of certain events, you know. 20, sure. 50, 100 years later, you look back on things and you say, wow, that actually was pretty transformational. And it's almost like we're too close to it right now to realize that we are absolutely in a different world and higher education is not responding. Emma? Uh, I was wondering, you know, whenever you propose change, there's always going to be some pushback. So I'm wondering what the, the reception has been uh, at, on the college. <laughs> Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but um, that has been by far the most um, challenging thing that we've had to go through. Uh, as any leader knows, um, you know, changing out technologies, doing that, you'll figure it out eventually. It's, it's the people part. You know, how do you, how do you get people who are very, very successful in what they're doing, who feel like they're doing everything right in a, a very stable organization? You know, a great university like Purdue. And, um, you know, when I first started introducing some of these ideas, I'd come home at night, you know, kind of scratching my head and wondering why I was getting people saying, um, to me that, Oh, you, you um, don't appreciate what we're doing. Um, you know, you don't, uh, you're basically saying that what we're doing is useless or what. And that wasn't the message at all, okay? It was simply that, look, I, I use the term good to great. You, you constantly try and improve. But, you know, they immediately kind of picked up on, well, there must be something wrong. Our dean doesn't uh, think that what we do is, is good or of value, and that's... I, I never use those words, okay? Um, but that was the kind of the initial reaction that I got from a lot of the faculty and staff. Um, and that kind of shocked me, I mean, uh, as a leader, uh, to be out there, you know, pr- promoting ideas that I thought were really good and exciting and would really take the college to a new level. They initially thought that I was criticizing, you know, the college in its present present form. Well, I mean, I guess at the root you could say it's a criticism, but how can you be criticized for not, you know, providing the right kind of educational environment and experiences yes. um, when the world has changed and, you know, you were simply doing what you had always been doing very, very successfully. Our graduates were still getting great jobs and great starting salaries. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't attempt to get out in front of that and see what we can do to lead, and that's really what I was trying to do. Now, since that time, we've had more acceptance, but it's still hard because, um, you know, this gets into some of the work of, of Dave and, and his book, and, you know, you're working with 
um, experts. Professors are experts. And, um, you know, overcoming that and just helping them to understand that, uh, you know, you need to be a little bit more open-minded to these things. Uh, but the course ownership, you know, uh, faculty feel like they own courses. And, you know, that's hard to break down when you're asking faculty to collaborate more and to maybe not think in these Carnegie units so much and think more about, you know, the outcomes that you want. Um, you know, there's a lot of constraints. We have a very, very stable bureaucratic organization that has been very successful, but you're starting to challenge some of those things, and it's been um, quite um, challenging. From a leadership standpoint. Yeah, so, and I remember some of those early days we were in conversation, yeah. and I was really happy that I was giving advice and not uh, not in the hot seat like you were. But, yeah. it, but you know, so that was, you know, so some of this is the reaction inside the the university mm-hmm. or inside your own in, inside your own college and, and in, in your departments. What's the larger reception um, at, at Purdue and in the outside world? Um, well, there's one college in particular that has embraced this idea, and I would say it's probably the most important one for what we're trying to do, and that is the College of Liberal Arts. Uh, they have really embraced this. I think their faculty have to a great extent. Um, we still have problems with, uh, you know, faculty thinking, you know, in other words, we'll talk to to the College of Liberal Arts or any other college on campus and we'll say, you know, we want to do things slightly differently and they immediately go back to, okay, we can create a new course for that. No, we're not talking about a course. You know, there's certain experiences we want to add into our curriculum and we want to partner with you. So you have to overcome those things. But uh, liberal arts has been very, very supportive. Quite frankly, there's some colleges that um, aren't too excited about this. Sure. Yeah. Um, they... Um, for whatever reason, uh, they have uh, not embraced what we're doing. Um, they're vocal about um, their thoughts on why they think this is not the right thing to do or that maybe we shouldn't be doing it. And I don't know the exact motives, but I think it kind of goes back again to um, higher ed and the idea of experts and you know one of the things I, I heard very early on which is very discouraging is um, I'd hear other people around campus say oh we're already doing that and it's like yeah, and I, I think that uh, you know I realize look education I'll give it some credit higher education has tried to change I mean it's not like it's you know we're teaching back in the 1700s but um, you know, the scale of that change. So they, I call it working around the edges. Yeah, all the colleges are working around the edges to try and uh, improve things. Um, but those are incremental changes. And what we're talking about is transformational or a step function is what I like to use in more engineering terms. That's the kind of change that we're after. Um, and it was discouraging to hear people say, well, we're already doing that. And then I'd have to yeah. start getting defensive about it. But anyways... Well, and then let's uh, and we're going to need to take a little break and um, 
after the break, we'll come back and, and bring, a, bring some of the faculty and, and other leaders in the college who are uh, helping bring this about. This is Big Beacon Radio with our uh, special uh, guest from uh, New Polytechnic, Gary Bertolini. And in the next segment, we'll bring in some, uh, some more of the faculty members who are uh, working on this initiative. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your co-hosts, Emma Schoenfellner and Dave Goldberg. We urge you to get a copy of the book that is transforming higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education, wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineering anymore. And before the break, we were with uh, Gary Bertolini from the Purdue Polytechnic. And Gary is uh, joined uh, now uh, by Jeff Evans, Associate Dean and Director of Learning Innovation for the Polytechnic, and Rich Dion, Theater Faculty Member and Polytechnic Faculty uh, Fellow. Uh, Jeff and Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. Uh, let's let's start with uh, you, Jeff. Uh, our listeners can and can go on the program page and learn more about you in particular. But before we get started, what what one or two things should our listeners know about you before we continue our conversation about the Polytechnic? Well, I think it's probably important um, for listeners to note that uh, that my background is quite varied um, between being a professional musician. Uh, 22 years as a practicing engineer, and then another, I'm, I'm in, in my 13th year at Purdue, um, joining the university in 2003. Um, and I, you know, when I became a faculty fellow in 2013, my goal, frankly, was simply to bring a little bit more music into the education of our students. Cool. Yeah. And Rich, how about you? So what, uh, you're a theater faculty member and, and, uh, and a, uh, Purdue uh, faculty, uh, Polytechnic faculty fellow. Uh, what should our listeners know about you before we hop into it? Well, Jeff stole my intro a little bit. I was going to uh, start by saying that my background is also incredibly varied, and unlike probably most of our students, my career path 
was certainly one that uh, consisted more of turns than straight lines, um, going everywhere from wanting to be an engineer as a kid to, at one point, wanting to be a Protestant minister to thinking I was going to be an English professor and then through time landing here as uh, a theater uh, designer and technologist. So uh, I think that, that definitely colors my perspective on what higher education should be about. Well, and, and that's so interesting that you both uh, share that because it seems like that's actually – careers have always been twisty and turny, and, and it's one of the myths of careers that they're kind of straight lines. I, I, I think that's – you know, people have um, had straight line careers maybe somewhere, but they usually have twists and turns, but they seem more twisty and turny as, as we've entered the 21st century and maybe – um, it's this kind of faculty that we need to educate the the, the young going forward. Emma, what uh, what what are you curious about? Uh, I'm curious since both of you have kind of a, a background in the arts. What do you learn from that or bring from that that can help enact change in an educational setting? Are there any like kind of virtues of music or theater that you can bring into that environment? Rich, why don't you go first, son, and we'll get to Jeff. Okay, sure. Um, I think one of the things that uh, we talk about a lot, at least in theater, um, you know, in addition to learning sort of the skills and, 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 and techniques of, of all the different crafts that go into putting a play on stage, um, there are these things that we talk about called habits of mind, right? Um, getting into the habit of being aware, even in your non-theatrical life, about things that can impact your understanding of uh, storytelling or um, the visual world around you or the audio world around you or habits of mind dealing with um, constant practice, right? You, you, you're, you don't learn a technique once and then never deal with it, with it again. You constantly engage in that practice. Um, so, so those sorts of things uh, and ways of thinking about the work you're doing and trying to bring that back into the classroom so it's not just... I learned a thing in my class last semester, and I'm never going to deal with it again. No, let's talk about uh, a curriculum that continues to engage you in the things you learn all the time, that uh, encourages you to engage uh, your everyday world with the things you're learning and, and, and engage the things you're learning with your everyday world, if that makes any sense. It does. Jeff, same question. What, uh, what do you bring from music, or what does music bring to the classroom that you think is important? Right, to um, to sort of kind of complement Rich's uh, thoughts on habit of mind, um, when I think about music, I think about improvisation. And improvisation is this idea of, um, you know, basically extending what you know. And, and you know, the, 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 the practice, um, you know, becomes becomes so much of a habit and, and the ability to adapt um, as, as in theater, um, adapt to changing situations. Um, that, that's, a, that's an improvisational, you know, kind of thing. And I think that's something that, um, from, from an educational perspective, I think it's important for students to, to get some insights on that because they will very likely have to do that throughout their life. Great. Good stuff. And, and, um, and that, of course, Emma asked that question because she's a television major, and so she's digging the answers <laughs> that you both have. <laughs> yes, um, I am. And, but, uh, okay, so 
this is all this is you know so we've got twisty turny people doing this but what this is a fairly new activity it started uh, back in about 2013 uh, maybe Gary come back to you how did how did you get this kind of kicked off and then I think we want to hear from and Jeff and Rich about some of the nuts and bolts of what happened for the transformation itself so um, it really started with our president Mitch Daniels um, when he came about three years ago. Um, I met with him and talked about um, some transformational ideas, and he really picked up on it. Uh, this is, he's a non-traditional president. He was a governor before and uh, not uh, from the academic side. So he was really looking at doing something that would uh, make a mark um, and also improve Purdue at the same time. So I got traction with him immediately. It became um, adopted by the Board of Trustees, and uh, we were kind of off and running at that point. Yeah. Um, the interesting part is that, you know, last one of the things I really learned is that when you talk about change of this level, you don't actually know exactly what it's going to look like in the future. You kind of make it up as you go. And I was very uncomfortable with that. Faculty were very uncomfortable with it. But, you know, you just keep on working towards that goal, and so we put together a group with the faculty fellows like Rich and, and Jeff, and um, they just started, you know, working through the problem. They, they met on a regular basis, and they said, you know, here's some broad parameters we're going to look at. Um, I was kind of doing my thing, looking at it from a, you know, a whole college standpoint, what we needed to do to transform an entire college. And it was like putting one foot in front of the other, and that's kind of how we started and and with uh, the short-term goal to bring in a, a small cohort of students to start uh, the, the first experiment, if you will. And so yeah. uh, two falls ago, that's when we actually started with that experimental group that Rich and Jeff were uh, heavily involved in. Yeah, and so... Um you know, Rich and Jeff. So, as that group got started, and you first started to do things with students, uh, what, what was that about? How was that different? How was that transformative? What did you do differently? Uh, maybe start with you, Jeff, and then we'll come to you, Rich. Okay. Um, even before uh, we started with students, um, I think one of the one of the gifts that um, that the initial core group of faculty fellows was actually given was was some time. And we, we spent some time actually getting to know ourselves and then um, actually getting to know each other, you know, before really embarking on, on a lot of nuts and bolts. And I, I look back at that time as really um, extremely important um, because even, even within the core group, there's that bit of skepticism and um, and, and those kinds of things. I mean, we, we're all faculty, so um, that was a very important time. Um, the initial cohort in the fall of 2014, we had gone through a process of, of developing what we thought would be um, a couple of somewhat unique and, and possibly special lear- what we call learning experiences, learning environments, um, based on a studio um, pedagogical model and a seminar pedagogical model, um, focusing on design thinking on the studio side and personal communication on the seminar side. 
which for me ended up being probably one of the most exhausting but completely uh, fulfilling experiences I've ever had in my life. Rich, what would you like to add to that? Sure. Well, Jeff mentioned um, the studio and seminar models, and after lots of research and reading and conversations, um, that that first group of faculty had identified some key goals um, in the development of those learning experiences for that cohort, Um, and they included some some hot-button words like and ideas like transfer of knowledge, integration of knowledge, um, getting students to move from very uh, uh, black and white either or thinking to and also thinking, uh, getting them to start thinking about and reflecting on their own education and, and where their learning is and where they want to go, um, and thinking about instruction and learning being developmental. And we, we had identified those two pedagogical approaches, the studio classroom where students are doing things hands-on um, with instructors and peers walking around giving critique um, kind of every moment that they're working um, and encouraging them to critique each other, um, and a seminar environment where they're um, often engaged in wrestling with big ideas um, and, and whether they agree with those ideas or not, or, or listening to what their peers say are important or not important about certain ideas, seemed like two really great learning experiences to, to push students into right away to start wrestling with those, those kinds of high-level educational goals. Uh, and as Jeff said, it was certainly exhausting, but exciting. Emma? Uh, so what was the, the student response? Because I know that there was, you know, some skepticism among faculty, but how quick were the students to adapt to what you're asking? Uh, if I could answer first, Jeff, uh, sure. um, if you don't mind, uh, I'll be frank. About two weeks in, I had a minor revolt on my hands. <laughs> yeah, say more. That's interesting. What, what, what was the revolt about? Um, you know, and I was teaching in the design lab in the studio model, which is a whole lot of, Try this thing, and I will guide you as you're doing it. There's not a whole. The studio model doesn't often involve long lectures where you demonstrate techniques uh, uh, and processes and procedures, and then have them mimic it in homework. You you give them a rough framework and kind of push them into the pool, and then help them learn how to how to you know turn their head when they breathe in the water or whatever. Um, this is not something that the students were prepared for. Um, and the first response from many of them after about a week or two weeks in was, you're not teaching us anything. Why aren't you teaching us stuff? Yeah. You're just making us do stuff and learn it. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a chuckle in that, right? Of course we're making you learn it. That's the whole point. Um, but what was exciting about that moment was the chance to – we had a couple of options as instructors, right? We could either – stomp our feet and say, this is the way it is, and this is what you're going to do, um, and sort of embrace our role as the teacher, the expert, right. or we could engage in a conversation with them. And we gave up a whole class period, or close to a whole class period, and said, okay, well, let's talk about that, and what does that mean, and why are you frustrated, and why do you yeah. think we're doing it? Um, and we had one class-long discussion like that, and then a number of other shorter ones throughout the semester as we began to sort of come together to a, an understanding of, of why that educational approach was being undertaken and what were the benefits and, and, and difficulties for both the sure. students and for us. Um, so that by the time we finished that semester, they were uh, very much on board, and we heard from faculty teaching and other classes they took in the spring that they were now challenging um, traditional lectures 
um, and asking lots of questions and saying, how do we integrate this and how do we use this material? So, um, it took when was the turning point in the board, semester? But, what yeah. about about what I, I I've seen this before, and I'm just curious what time what time of the semester did it actually start? To, did the ship start to turn? Where they started to get on board and and, yeah. and were less resistant and more uh, accepting yeah. of it. Um, yeah. I think it started right around that second week, but it took probably until about the middle of the semester yeah. Yeah. Um, for them to really start to embrace it and enjoy it, as opposed to being yeah. afraid of it. And you know, to, in yeah. their defense, their biggest fear was, I don't know how I'm going to get an A on this, because you haven't told me how to do it, so I can't yeah. show you I know how to do it. Yeah. Um, and that's scary. Well, and I've seen this elsewhere in, in iFoundry. The turning point was about six, seven weeks in, and they, they, they complained bitterly. We had them blogging. Uh, we had, we didn't have the, the semester, the, 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 meet, the meeting like you did, but they were complaining, oh, these iFoundry guys are not teaching us anything. They don't know what they're doing. And then about halfway through, they started to say things like, this is pretty cool. And then they, mm-hmm. they started to run with it. So it, what it takes, you know, so when someone's been in shackles, it takes them about six weeks to really believe that they're, to really believe that they're they're free, Jeff. Do you do you have uh, we've we've got just a minute or so left in the segment. Do you have something to add? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, we um, we saw similar kinds of uh, to use Rich's term revolt um, and similar timing uh, yeah. on the on the on the dot connecting uh, on the seminar side where students. Um, what they were building were basically um, essentially stories either about themselves or about a major problem uh, in in the world uh, that they were passionate about, and we were having them do this in all kinds of different uh, all sorts of different ways you know so not just orally or in writing but also audio visually you know musically you know those types of things so Similarly, we were giving them lots of um, lots of ways to to learn, but we weren't really teaching them. We were more more um, facilitating, and uh, there was that there was that same sense of um, frustration. But yeah. again, after, at the, at about the midway point, you know, the tide started to turn. Yeah, great. So, um, and I, and I think we want to continue this conversation for a little bit more and find out some of what those early results are. But I think we also want to turn to some of what are some of the lessons learned and, and what are you guys doing now since the, those early days? This is Big Beacon Radio with uh, our special guests, Gary Bertolini, Jeff Evans, and Rich Dion from the per, Purdue Polytechnic. And in the next segment, we're going to find out uh, what's next and where things are, what, what some of the big uh, rock and big lessons have been. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. 
Contact him at deg at threejoy.com or browse the Three Joy website, www.threejoy.com today. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Get the coaching and deep faculty development you need to transform higher education at your institution at 3joy.com. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm joined by co-host Emma Schoenfellner, and we're here with Gary Bertolini, Jeff Evans, and Rich Dion from per- Purdue University and the Polytechnic there. And um, in the last segment, we were talking about some of the early days of the start of uh, um, the the Polytechnic. Emma, what uh, what questions still on your mind from that segment? Yeah, I was wondering, uh, any of you, if you could share with our listeners, uh, what are some some things from those early days that really stuck with you um, that would be maybe helpful if someone else is uh, embarking on a change initiative? Who wants well, it? Well, well, I start uh, from a leadership standpoint. Um, I, I found out that um, being a leader in a change environment is very different from a leader that is kind of just trying to make things better. Uh, I had no idea the challenges that would be faced in trying to do this. Um, if I had to do over again, I'm not sure I would. Uh, thinking about some of the experiences, I'm half joking there, but boy, if you want to do something uh, like this, you better be prepared. And I found out a lot about myself personally. I did a lot of personal growth uh, during that time. But um, the challenges I faced uh, were pretty remarkable. Um, and um, some things I had never faced before. Um, and it's, it's uh, learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about other people, learned a lot about the fact that people who are in leadership positions when you start doing change like we're doing, they might be very, very successful in what they were doing, but when they're faced with a, a high change situation, they actually aren't very good at it at all, and we really struggled at the start to uh, work our way through that. Um, and then the other thing is the resiliency of, of the organization. Um, there are times when I thought, you know, it would fail, but, you know, it's... It, there is a resiliency there, too, and once you kind of weather the initial storm, you start picking up momentum, and uh, we're doing pretty well right now. Well, in, in coaching, we often talk about that, you know, administration is about making the past happen, you know, making yesterday happen today, so it's yeah. about the past. Managing is about kind of today, and leadership is about the future, and and so what I'm hearing you say is that, the you know, the routine administration that is typically valued and kind of making things run smoothly um, isn't enough. Uh, you know, that thing, th- you know, classes have to be held, grades have to be given, things have to be done, but, 
but in order to make these kinds of changes, there's some things that are necessary. But you were talking about it uh, from a personal point of view that, about your own growth. In what ways do you think this experience and cha- what uh, sounds like a very challenging experience is, has helped you help you grow as a person and a, as a, as a leader? Well, uh, you know, um, lucky enough, I started uh, leadership coaching. Uh, I, that's something that had never crossed my mind. Um, I got that uh, from a couple of sources as far as recommendations. Um, you know, working with you initially, Dave, um, yep. we talked about those things. Yep. I also had a very good advisory board. Boy, they they really empathize with me. And, you know, in industry, they go through these changes pretty often. And yep. a lot of my advisory board members or leaders, they talked about uh, not only getting a leadership coach, but getting kind of a chief of staff. And when I hired that chief of staff, that made a dramatic difference in what I could do with my time. I could, again, get back up a, you know one level and, and kind of deal with the big picture and not be dragged into some of these day-to-day things. I still get sure. to get that, of course, but um, that that was one thing. And when I got into the, the leadership coaching, there are some very transformational things that I have gone through personally. I, I learned yeah. how important it was to eat right and sleep, and I, you know, I've started um, uh, the mindfulness practice uh, because um, th- this is not something for the faint-hearted um, to go through this. Um, so that, it really, I had a, a lot of personal growth. Yeah, it's interesting that in industry, uh, you know, so if you, there are these videos online, you can go see uh, Eric Schmidt and, and Bill yeah. Gates say that everybody needs a coach and, and getting, a, getting a coach is de rigueur for in the C-suite, but it's yeah. not really a big practice in, in the, uh, uh, in, in the academic boardroom and, and, uh, as you're saying, if you're if you're going to undertake these kinds of changes, having having someone that you can talk to and 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 talk about these important things is is a is a big deal. I guess I'm curious now in the trenches uh, from from you, Rich or Jeff, um, what were some of the what were some of the big things you learned in 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 the um, in what you've done so far? Maybe uh, who wants to go first? Jeff, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, you know, I too, similar to Gary, have learned an awful lot about myself, um, you know, during this, you know, during this time, um, you know, just the, just my own, um, capability of, of listening, especially to my, my transdisciplinary peers, you know, from, from across campus, um, also, to echo Gary, just just how hard you know real change you know can be. There's 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 the incremental stuff, which really isn't too much of a big deal. But um, you know the the real change can really be hard. And I think um, I think lastly, just I'll just comment of you know the immense pride that I feel uh, for all my colleagues, um, my colleague faculty fellows who have, you know, hung in there, been persistent, um, continue to be, you know, tenacious in, in um, you know, basically, you know, just, just getting this done um, and, you know, working towards something that, frankly, all of us admit that it will probably not end. Um, you know, it's just, um, it's, it's quite um, rewarding. Rich, what about you? What, uh, what, what, 
what big things have you learned uh, from the experience so far? Well, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't say I learned a lot about myself after both uh, <laughs> my colleagues. <laughs> and I certainly have. Um, I was thinking about this question, though, as they were talking, and, and one of the biggest things I learned right from the very beginning, and I, and I have to consistently remind myself about, is that the assumptions that I make and all of my colleagues make from, uh, you know, even in my own department all the way across campus to uh, my colleagues in the Polytechnic, the assumptions we make about so much of what we do, uh, what it means to be a student, what it means to be an instructor, what it means to be yeah. learning, what it means to do homework, what does a project mean, what does uh, you know, a studio classroom mean. We all have very different assumptions about what seem like they should be really, really simple concepts. Um, and when we don't take some time to unpack those things, we end up talking past each other an awful lot. Um, and that leads to lots of tension and conflict. Um, but the times when we've been most successful in moving forward have been the times when we say, so what you mean is this, right? That's what I think I hear you saying. Um, and when we unpack those assumptions, uh, um, we're actually able to make some real, um, real progress and, and forward momentum. Yeah, we we had Ed Shine on the show not that long ago, and and the, and this is culture all the way down, and and mm-hmm. it's not monoculture as you're pointing out. When you bring together these different units, you're bringing together the union of of what are you wouldn't think that they would be so different. There, of course, we're all academics, but we we all have very different things that we think about. We share some of the same assumptions, but but many of those assumptions are different, and of course. The whole the whole thing that we're trying to do is to shift those underlying assumptions that we're barely aware of. So it's a right. it, it is it's a, it's huge. We you know we've got just a few minutes left uh, until until we have to sign off. But I'm, I'm just uh, uh, you know what's next? Uh, give us a give us a we've got about two minutes left. What what's uh, what's next uh, for the Polytechnic? Maybe Gary, start with you and and uh, with a an answer, and then I get a quick answer from the trenches too. Sure. Um, I think what what is next for us is we've allowed uh, our six departments to kind of go at their own pace as far as uh, this transformational change. We have uh, 10 elements that kind of summarize what uh, this change should look like, and uh, they've been working on it. But, you know, it really isn't fast enough. Um, uh, The changes, I call them bolt-ons instead of truly transformational. Yeah. and so what I'm doing right now is I'm planning for what we can do during the summer when a lot of faculty are off and make one real good hard run at this. Luckily, we have one department that actually got it right. They literally took a blank sheet of paper and rewrote their curriculum uh, so that they have integrated learning throughout. And so we have a model. We also have the model of the transdisciplinary degree um, that... Uh, you know, Jeff and Rich uh, helped to lead, and I want to use those as catalysts for the rest of the departments to get on board. Just maybe uh, 30 seconds, Jeff. The, this transdisciplinary degree sounds uh, interesting. Give us the very quick uh, uh, lowdown on it. Um, sure. The, um, the transdisciplinary degree is, um, well, it's intended to be very transdisciplinary, um, not just multi or interdisciplinary. Um, it is Purdue's first uh, competence, what they're calling a competency-based um, 
degree where students... 15 seconds. They'll take classes, but they also have to gain proficiency in, in eight broad competencies. So that's, you know, that's kind of what, that, what that's about. And a lot of this work is informing some scale-up activities uh, okay. through, throughout the, the entire polytechnic as well. Great. And uh, anyways, I wish we had more time. It sounds uh, like exciting stuff. I, uh, the parts that I've been involved with have been, uh, have been challenging, exciting, exhilarating, as, as you all have, have said. Um, Gary, uh, just uh, if people want to find out more about the Polytechnic, where, where do they go on the web to learn more, a URL or an email address or something? Yeah, well, uh, just uh – PurduePolytechnic.edu, you can get to us. Um, and, you know, if they want to contact me personally, that would be fine. I, I, I really love to talk about what we're doing. And I could just go with Bertolini at Purdue.edu, and I'd be happy to speak with them. Great. Thank you. Thank, thank all three of you for joining the show. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with uh, Emma Schoenfellner and Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to Gary Bertolini, Jeff Evans, Rich Dion of the Purdue Polytechnic. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. And join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.